Welcome to West Virginia Beer Roads, a podcast all about beer from a West Virginia perspective. I'm Erin McCoy, here with my podcast partner, Charles Bakwe. There is no one person who's had more to do with establishing a modern approach to the wine business in West Virginia and to our public wine culture here, more than our guest today. He grew up in Harrison County and he's been living in Charleston for many years. And you've probably seen his wine column in the Charleston Gazette Mail or the State Journal regularly since the 1980s. Of course, I'm talking about John Brown. John, welcome to West Virginia Beer Roads. Hey. Nice to be here. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, we're gonna switch a little bit of gears here and we're not gonna talk so much about beer tonight. We'll get into some beer, but uh, we wanna talk about <laughs> wine a little bit and West Virginia wine market. Uh, you've certainly been an observer of the West Virginia wine market for a long time. And I just kind of like to start out with how would you describe the current state of West Virginia wine market? Well, let me just say one thing first. Uh, uh, I, like everybody else, I think of my era, I started out drinking beer, didn't drink much wine, drink occasional Mad Dog 2020 or some really great product like that. But one of the things I've discovered in, in, in my home winemaker is some people said, well, what about beer? I mean, you get there are all these craft breweries and don't you like beer too? And I, and I always say it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. And that's the absolute truth because I've never ever made beer, made wine where we, we weren't, you know, hoisting a few uh, brews. Uh, anyway, uh, talking about state of um, the state wineries, um, you know, they start out uh, really, really well. I, you know, we, the history, we're gonna talk historically about the first ones and that sort of thing, but they kind of, uh, they, they kind of didn't really, I guess they, they, they just really haven't evolved as much as I, I had hoped they would. Um, there, there are a lot of good ones. Uh, there, there, there are ones that are doing a great job. The biggest problem I see with West Virginia wineries is their either inability to grow what's called vinifera grapes. Those are the ones you've heard of, Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot, Chardonnay, Riesling, or, uh, and it, and it and I can give you some reasons why they're probably not doing that. It's a lot harder in our, with our climate and that sort of thing. Uh, so they've kind of stuck with a French American hybrid grapes, which you may have heard of Saval Blanc and Vidal Blanc and Chambersan and those kind of grapes, which nobody that, that drinks wine uh, on a casual basis knows about or has heard of. And they do a pretty good job with those. I mean, I've had some really great uh, uh, Vidal Blancs and Save All Blancs and Chambersans from different people. And as a matter of fact, a grape called Ravat, Ravat 61 uh, is as good a har uh, late harvest sweet wine as, as I've ever had. But I think my biggest concern about West Virginia wineries, and I hope they take the next step, is that if they would concentrate more like they do in Virginia on growing varietals that people recognize, given the fact that it's more difficult here, but I think that would advance the industry to, a, to another level. Uh, on, Virginia has really, I was gonna say Virginia, outside of California, Virginia is, uh, is a really the best, the next best wine market. At, outside of California, Oregon and Washington, Virginia is the next best uh, wine market in the country. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about the, because, I mean, I know that West Virginia wineries per se are a small part of our overall wine market here, but what, what do you think about the general lay of the land of our wine market in, in West Virginia for all, I mean, with those uh, wines from Europe or, or California or, or the Pacific? Well, we doing? I think that, um, I think we're doing really well. I mean, uh, we're a small state, 1.8 million people. Um, and uh, if you look at the demographics, uh, we're, we're old like the, like me, most of, most of the Westerners are, are my age or, or younger, but you know, it, in that category. So we don't, our market is pretty mature. Um, what, what is difficult, and I'm thinking that people that now in the craft brew industry uh, have, have got that demographic, the younger demographic, uh, pretty much, cons you know, they, they, they've captured that market. But I'm thinking that those people also drink wine, but maybe not as maybe not as often. But you know, in our state, you right now when we, you mentioned earlier before we started here that back in the early days in the 70s and 80s and almost even into the 90s, it was very difficult. Certainly back in the 70s, they didn't. You had to buy your, your wine at, at a liquor store. So we, we were able to change that law. Now now you have availability. And just about, I mean, you literally can go to a, a local wine shop or grocery store and tell them that you want this wine, even though they don't have it. They'll go to their distributor. And if the distributor doesn't have it, they generally can get it, unless it's something really rare. So there's an ability now, and particularly uh, with online uh, uh, wine sales. I mean, I, I, I buy a lot of wine uh, online, a couple of different purveyors that, that I trust. And uh, I have it sent to the FedEx uh, print and ship center. So that, you know, I don't have to sign for it myself until I go and pick it up. So, so there, there literally is an availability to, to get just about anything you want. And that's, you know, I've thought that myself, that it's an incredibly positive environment considering again how small we are and how little wine we really drink but the availabilities here and what i've asked like when i go to the wine shop at the at capital market i've ordered mm -hmm. special ordered wine and like you said you can pretty much get you know whatever you want it's really yeah. so different from the beer market because we don't they don't allow uh, the beer to come into the state like they do wine or it's not as easy to bring in these special products and things and it's you know there's good news Good news and bad news with that. Good news is you have access to all these wines all over the world. The bad news is you've got access to all these wines all over the world. And the problem is, you know, wine, the language of wine is so confusing anyway, because a lot of the words are, are foreign language, you know, French or Italian or whatever. And so the label information is so, so difficult. Uh, and so a lot of people won't drink anything other than American uh, wines or wines that were, that were the labels in English. But, but even that, there are so many, so, so many types of, of, of wine, um, you know, that, that it can be overwhelming. That's one of the things when I write my wine columns for State Journal and for the Gazette Mail, uh, what I try to do is I probably give people too much information. But I want—I I view my my role as, as almost an educator. Now, certainly, I have my own preferences, and I state them. And then the other thing that I always try to do, and I'm—I I assume that people that write about beer do this too—is wine is only half of the experience. Food is the other half. 
And so I always, whenever I write about a particular wine, uh, I always talk about the foods that I think would, would match well, pair well with it. So to me, it's an educational process. It's a process where you have to sort through all of the stuff out there. I always tell people when I do uh, tastings or, or wine dinners, if you think that you've had the best wine, you haven't. And, and, and if you also, secondarily, if you think that you have to pay a lot of money to get a good wine, you might, but you don't. You know, so just explore, do, do more exploring. And that's what I like about, I love, I'm a mountaineer, you know, I went to WVU. And so I'm, I'm a mountaineer gold and blue through and through. But so I love the craft brew industry and I, I really support a lot of them. And we'll talk about the ones I like a little later, the ones I particularly like. But, but the one good thing about that is that you've got a, you've got a state industry that that we all kind of love and, and want to support small business all those kinds of things local all the nice buzzword kind of things that make a lot of sense well, john let me bring in my co-host here on west virginia beer roads aaron mccoy aaron hello welcome to west virginia beer roads john we're glad that you're able to join us this evening oh good good to, good to be here aaron um, how about um, telling me some things that you think that we could do better or that we really need to improve in our wine market all around? Well, you know, I follow it fairly closely. I'm very good friends with some of the people that got this industry started, like the Stone and Thomas people. And then out of that came Teddy Armbrecht with, with the wine shop at Capital Market. Um, I think in terms of the of the retail exposure that we have, I think is it, the distributors have been pretty good about bringing all the different products that, that a lot of the different products that are available out there. If you read the Wine Spectator, for example, and you see some of the things that are a little bit more obscure and hard to get, you still can ask and, and possibly get them. But the, the beauty of, of the way the, the um, wine industry, the retail wine industry has matured in West Virginia, is that you literally can go to any grocery store now, uh, mom and pop, pop-in shop, and you, you can find wine. Whereas in the old days, it was more difficult. And uh, I know that there, I loved it, walk through the grocery stores and and now I, and look at, at all the beer that's available. So there's a, there's a lot more product now than there ever was, and, and it's easier to get to it. So I think the the market is has matured, uh, and I and I think really uh, I don't know what else we could do except maybe um, have more wine shops and more places that sell wine and beer. <laughs> well, regarding the retail side and the restaurant side of it, um, what do you think that they could do to get better with wine, as far as maybe obtaining better wine, or is there anything that they could do better that than they well, are currently? You know, one of the things that I've always um, and I don't know what the, what the state law is because different retailers are, and, and on-premises places, restaurants tell me different things. But there, are, a lot of states will allow you to, to bring your own wine to dinner and charge you a corkage fee. And there are certain restaurants in the state that will allow that. Others say, and hey, I can't do it. Um, so that's one thing I would like to see. I would lo love to see changed is that we had a uniform law that would allow you to, and they can charge you a corkage fee, whatever they think is appropriate. You know, ten dollars, twenty dollars, thirty dollars a bottle, 
Uh, and um, that, that would be an improvement. In terms of the other things, I think that um, wines from different, from, from emerging regions and from regions that are not easy to get. For example, the Baltic states, um, th those countries um, used to be Czechoslovakia, hell, I can't even think of the name uh, of the countries now, make wonderful red wines particularly. In, uh, I'm thinking of Slovenia and places like that, that, that really don't have much exposure in a state like West Virginia. Um, wines from, believe it or not, Georgia in the Soviet, used to be the Soviet Union, but the, the Georgia and Moldova in, in Russia. I, I'm looking for obscure kind of things sometimes that I read about that really, you know, and it really make me want to taste them. So I guess there's a I'm not, I'm not really disappointed. I, I'm kind of happy with the way things are in terms of the way it's matured, the way the audience has, has matured. I mean, not the audience, but the, re, the retail wine market has matured. But, you know, there are always a lot of things um, that it, I guess another, another aspect, and again, this would relate to uh, the way, the, the way the, that wines are um, regulated is a, a let, I, I think the state sometimes uh, is restricts tastings and dinners and has really weird laws. And a lot of times, again, it's depending upon what stage, what, what part of the state you're in, you can do things that you can't do in other parts. So there's no uniformity to a lot of the way the ABCC rec regulates um, where and how you can consume uh, wine. You know, John, I as I recall, you grew up in Clarksburg, and I think you've told me you ha your mother had Italian heritage, and I know there's a lot of Italian heritage in Clarksburg, and probably yep. a lot of wine, uh, you know, back uh, even historically, and kind of curious, growing up as a kid and all that environment, how did that affect your development of wine appreciation? Well, I can tell you that what my mother is Italian. Uh, my father is from Richwood. He's an Irishman. Um, but he, when he, after the war, he and my mother got married. He came to Clarksburg because that's where that's where the work was. He worked at a at a glass plant. He was ahead of his union. Well, he married into a family, and, a, and if you know anything about Italian families, this was a large family. I mean, it's very insular. I mean, but and, and you're you know everybody does everything together. So he was kind of overwhelmed, but eventually kind of got used to it. I grew up in that environment. My grandfather, who was a coal miner for the first 15 years and saved his money, built a bakery, which my cousins still run in, a, in an area of Clarksburg called Northview, Health Bread, Denunzio's Health Bread. I worked there from the time I was in sixth grade um, through high school. In high school, I'd work on a Friday night. I'd play a football game, go home and I go to work at two in the morning, work, you know, sacking hoagie buns and pepperoni rolls and all that sort of thing. So I, you know, I, we'd go to Sunday dinner, even as children, a lot of times they would put a little wine in a glass and put some water in it. And when everybody toasted, we were expected to do it. And we, and I hated it. I, I'd go, I'd come home from Catholic school when I was six or seven years old. My grandmother cooked me these wonderful lunches, you know, just great stuff. And then she would make me drink a little bit of wine, and I didn't like it at all. I mean, so, you know, I think the first time that I discovered that wine was something more than just a beverage, and it could have other, it could have other effects. When I was about 13 years old, I brought my my friend David, my grandfather's cellar, 
and we ended up drinking a whole bunch of wine and just getting completely drunk. I think I was about 13 years old. And, you know, then I said, I'm never drinking this stuff again. It's sour. It's awful. So, you know, flash forward, I'm in college and, um, uh, you know, my, my idea of, of quality wine was Gallo Hardy Burgundy. And if I drank any of that, or a lot of times I'd get that and mix it with uh, a quart of Budweiser and make a Spodiote. So I wasn't a real, you know, wine aficionado. But what happened was as I, um, when I went back, to, when I got out of the army, went to graduate school, really got interested in wine and um, wine and food and that sort of thing. And eventually, to the point where when I came to Charleston, the first thing I did was I joined with Andy McQueen because he was making wine, a homemade a home winemaker. And I started making it and really got into it and traveled. And the rest is history. I mean, I just kind of fell in love with the whole process. I like to eat and drink. You can tell by looking at me, I'm not thin. Uh, it, but, but the point is that those two things, uh, the, the eating and drinking, <laughs> particularly when you can get beverages and food that kind of uh, are, are greater than the, the than the individual parts you know this that that's to me is is uh, is the best thing one of the best things in life so that's a long way of saying that I didn't like wine but then I kind of evolved in, into a complete wino which I spelled w-i-e w-i-n-e-a-u-x this uh-huh. is fancy wino well, speaking of evolving, um, looking into a little bit about you and what's going on and checking out your website, I see you don't just write about wine these days, and you absolutely have a website, which is uh, wordsbyjohnbrown.com, and there's some information on there. Would you talk about that for us? Yeah, you know, I, um, I retired from my day job about four years ago, and uh, my wife said, you know, John, you, you probably can't start drinking wine at 10 o'clock in the morning, to which I said, why not? But you said, you're gonna you need to do something. You've always wanted to write. You always wanted to write a novel. And I, it, I always had, I just, I was too lazy when I was working and, and, and raising a family. And, um, but, but I thought, yeah, you know, when I, 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 I was unfor- one of the unfortunate uh, people that got to go to Southeast Asia and all expense paid trip to Vietnam in 1969 and 70. And when I came back, I was so affected by it. Not so much at, not a P, in a PT, PST, what is it, PTSD way, but I was affected by, I'd read all kinds of war books before that. I, and I was actually in a war. I'm thinking, man, you can't make this stuff up. So I thought, well, maybe I will. I'll try to write a novel. So I started writing. I wrote a couple of chapters, sent them off to a friend of mine who was in New York. They liked it. But then they said, nobody wants to read about Vietnam. This was like in 1980. So I put it down. I get, I, re, I retire. So I started writing this book. And the first book called Augie's War, A-U-G-I-E. Augie is a guy, is Augustino. But he's, but he's kind of like I was. He's half Irish and half Italian growing up in the Italian side. So he gets, he lives, a, he, he graduates from college uh, at a real bad time. He gets drafted, goes to Vietnam. The way he gets through that experience is he flashes back to all these family moments, all the times working at his grandfather's bakery, all the good things. That's the way he he gets through the madness of the of the experience. Okay, so I finished that book. It seemed to be fairly well uh, critically 
taken by a lot of people. I got a lot of really, really good reviews on Amazon, almost all five stars. Uh, so I, I wrote a, a sequel called Augie's World. And uh, Augie's World, um, it, it follows Augie when he comes back from Vietnam. And he's really suffering from PTSD. And he tries to go to graduate school, can't do that. Finally comes back, works at his, his uh, now his uncles are running the bakery because he's having such bad dreams and such a tough time. He's, 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 he's taking drugs, he's drinking, he, and he's trying to get through it and his family's trying to help him. Well, I don't want to give away the plot, but something bad happens where he has to leave town and he's being chased or, uh, by, by uh, the mob. And so, so a bunch of things happen. I introduce a whole bunch of crazy characters and uh, it's, it's how Augie kind of gets, gets through that. And so everybody now is saying, well, you're going to write another Augie story. And you know, I don't want to, but, you know, I think I'm probably going to because it's, I need to finish this saga. But in any event, that's, that's, that's how I, that's, you know, that's what I, I do. I, I write now and I used to tell people kind of kiddingly, but I think in the back of my mind, I actually believe this, that writing about wine and food all these years was just keeping practicing my my uh, my art my skill so that one day I could write a book so that's it <laughs> so you can find it on Amazon it's at, at Taylor Books in Charleston it's at the West Virginia Marketplace at the Capital Market so there's my uh, my ugly uh, uh, commercial little pitch yeah John we'll put up uh, links to your website and all on our website here for West Virginia Beer Roads and Thank you. Brilliant stream when with, with this article and with this podcast and things. So yeah, we'll definitely do that. Um, Thank you. We're talking a little bit about the old days, and you know, I re remember you and Andy McQueen first time that, in my mind anyway, was like back in 1981 when the legislature was taking up the privatizing the wine industry from taking it out of state right. control. You guys were working on that. How did you get involved yeah. in that effort? Well, you know, I was, I was making wine with Andy, and uh, I knew the people who were in, the, in those days involved in the wine industry. And I certainly knew, uh, I, you know, I, I was, I, I was up at the legislature. I was a, what I call a semi lobbyist in those days. You didn't have to register, but so Andy actually did the, he and another fellow wrote the first draft of that law. And uh, eventually, I don't think it was, was it passed in 81 or did it have to go back? I can't remember, but regardless, it, it, it did pass and it established the uh, Farm Winery Act, didn't it? That was the first thing. And then, then the Retail Sales Act yeah. was followed that in a couple of years. I think that's well, I think they was. were, yeah, I mean, I think they might've worked on it and it came back, but I think they both ended up passing in 81, but whatever, okay, right. I mean, it was back in the early eighties, back in the right. early. But, but, but what, but you know, the, uh, the, it was really interesting because up to that point, as you pointed out earlier, Damn, that beer looks good. Could you give me one? No, I'm just, I, I can, here, let me, I was going to show you. I've got some wine. I'm sitting, staring at 100 bottles of wine, and I've got a bunch back behind me, and some of it's homemade, so I'm about ready to crack one open. But in any event, you know, yeah, that was an interesting time, and we were able to um, uh, work with uh, some, uh, some great legislators to get this thing passed, and which you know, took it from the liquor store. I don't, you know, it was difficult. Back in those days, the ABC commission did not want to give that up. 
I mean, that was a huge source of revenue. Um, it, but we were able to uh, prevail. And from that time, the rest is history. Uh, the first wine shops that, and, and Andy and I actually, we did tastings at work at Stone and Thomas. Stone and Thomas then, uh, again, uh, Ted Armdrecht Sr., great, great guy and very visionary, uh, was decided that he would have wine shops in all of the um, all of his stores around the state. And at that time, he had several stores, Parkersburg, Wheeling, all over the place. So Andy and I would, on a weekend, we'd switch off. Almost every other weekend, it seemed like, we would go up to, one of us would go to Wheeling or Parkersburg or, or Huntington, and we'd do wine tastings. And so it enabled us to do that, spread the word that way. Uh, and uh, we then would do tastings, obviously, at Stone and Thomas and and down here in downtown Charleston, in the basement. And that developed into, I would do um, wine dinners at the Marriott a lot of times for um, different events at the Tarragon Room, if you'll remember that place. Um, and so they, they also had a guest chef program where they would bring uh, Peter Meyer, uh, God rest his soul, who's been gone for a while now, was a great class, classically trained uh, chef and he brought in all of these buddies from Europe that they come in for a whole week if you remember that the guest chef program from Italy from Germany from Spain different places and we would do these uh, these pair of the wines with them um, so that people could then choose to have wine with their with the with the dinner the guest chef dinner so a lot of good things happened as a result of all of that work that was done in the early 80s to get uh, to make wine more accessible yeah, I don't think, you know, if you're a young, younger person that wasn't around back in the late 70s up to the early 80s, you don't remember how bad the wine market was here. You couldn't get anything. Yeah. I mean, that was night yeah. and day. And what you guys did, and you and Andy and the others who all worked, I mean, there was a lot, I'm sure, a lot of people working on that legislation. Oh, yeah. But that's just was a radical transformation. It modernized the West Virginia wine industry to, like we were saying at the very beginning of this uh program where you can pretty much get most anything you want now in wine here even though we're not a big wine drinking state and we're a small population state you yeah. still can get availability of all kinds of stuff that wouldn't that you know it's wasn't like that years ago not at all i was just it's, it's just hard to believe that things aren't weren't always the way they are because it just was it was i remember one time going to um to uh, the the store on Tennessee was it Tennessee? Yeah, no, it was Ohio Avenue. Liquor yeah, Ohio store. Avenue was and the big. Liquor point, store. I, I was in, it was probably the early eighties before the law passed, and I was looking around and I saw this Chateau Codesternel. It's a second growth Bordeaux, which if you know anything about wine, if you try to buy a bottle of that now retail, you know probably five hundred dollars a bottle, four hundred in a good vintage. This was nineteen seventy, and I knew that seventy was a spectacular. Bordeaux vintage, they were selling it for the un unbelievably high cost of $8 a bottle, which, you know, and I was working and I had two young kids. I, I went and I, I got my checkbook out and I actually bought a case of it. And, and I didn't tell my wife uh, because uh, I don't think she'd have been appreciative of it. She is now because that 70 was, uh, believe it or not, was our wedding end anniversary 1970 is when we got married and we just drank i had three bottles of left just our 50th wedding anniversary drank a damn bottle of that and it's still still super 
It's unbelievable. Kind of brown, a little orange, but flavors there. I mean, I was afraid to decan it because I thought it would go away. Hell, it's, I, it literally lasted for like two hours and got better. So anyway, th that was one of the benefits of having the state store. They didn't know what the hell they had. So I get this really great second growth Bordeaux for eight bucks a bottle, which at that time was, you know, probably the equivalent of 20 bucks, which still is a, was nothing uh, for that kind of wine. But that was the only benefit I ever had from, from, the, from the state store, <laughs> the state store system. Well, there's definitely been some significant changes since back in 1981, which for me was a little bit early in my lifetime, certainly before I even knew what wine was. Um, what would you say are the biggest, most significant changes that we've accomplished from that time to now? Well, well obviously, you know, the, the availability is probably the, the, the biggest thing. Um, and I can't imagine back then try, trying to get even some of the better Cabernets or Chardonnays or Pinot Grigios that we can get now. So you have this, this availability. Uh, also it's exposed people to, you know, whether you're drinking a beer or, or a glass of wine, um, it, it kind of is a, is a wonderful way of, of sharing, uh, you know, your friendship with your family, with your loved ones. It opens up, you know, a whole, kind of uh, aesthetic uh, that, that we didn't have in the old days. Um, uh, to have a nice bottle, to be able to get a nice bottle of wine and not necessarily have to spend a whole lot of money. You know, you can, I, what I love about the capital market and a lot of, a lot of other um, wine shops around the state do this probably, but they have a 10 and under, 12 and under sections where for like 10 or 12 bucks, you're getting a really nice bottle of wine. And they're very good about um, selecting those wines, uh, curating them, if you will. So we have that now that we did we didn't have before. We have knowledgeable people in in these wine shops, and even in some of the bigger uh, grocery stores, people that actually can lead you to the specific varietal that you're looking for, uh, can tell you, you know what you might. If, what are you having for dinner tonight? Well, we're having uh, chicken roast chicken. You might want to try this uh, this white wine from uh, this Muller Turgau from Northern Italy and, you know, weird stuff like that. So, but I mean, it's really, it really accrues to all of our benefit that we have this new, this, this availability to, to get whatever we want pretty much and uh, to enjoy that with, with people uh, in, in a, in a setting in our home or, or even at a restaurant, but we have, we have that uh, availability. Well, John, we talked a little bit about, uh, or you did about the farm wineries getting started back in the early eighties. And, you know, today we have 29 of them, but um, yeah, I was kind of wondering, yeah, I know you were involved with uh, Wilson Ward and Fisher Ridge Vineyard a little bit and some of the other winery pioneers in West Virginia. Talk a little bit about some of your reflections on, on those, those winery pioneers here that helped us get the industry started. Yeah, there are, there are several folks that really deserve a lot of credit. Uh, Wilson, obviously, and Andy, their, their winery at Fisher Ridge was the first uh, actual bonded winery since the Civil War in West Virginia. And uh, they started out with great ideas about growing a lot of different things, including Chardonnay and at Sangiovese and 
all that sort of thing. I remember when I went out there and I was into wine, just gotten into wine, I was home winemaker. I remember the hard work of actually having a post hole digger and, and, and stringing up the wire and uh, planting the grapes. Yeah, I, I like to make wine, but I, I don't think I'd like to farm it. You know, it's, it's a lot of work, but they actually grew things like, I'll, rem I'll never forget this, they had a, a, a one acre plot. It was experimental where they, grow, they grew uh, uh, several rows of, of Cabernet Sauvignon, Sangiovese, and uh, Chardonnay. And miraculously, not miraculously, after three years, the, the red wines uh, matured. They made wine with them, and they were great. But then the Chardonnay in the second year, uh, we had a day in January, like a, a day like today, where it was um, 45 or 50 degrees, and the next day it went down to 12. And so it killed the, the vines. And that's the problem that a lot of, you know, uh, West Virginia wineries are going to have. But anyway, so you have those, you have those guys. I think of, of, um, of, of Dr. Charlie Whitehill, of Potomac Highlands Winery. He's still doing this stuff. He, he is one of the few people in the state that actually grow vinifera. He, he's up at like 2,000 feet, I think in Hardy County, or maybe it's, it's near Romney or uh, Kaiser, I'm sorry. And, and he's growing, you know, um, Riesling, Chardonnay, he is Cabernet and Merlot, Pinot Noir. And he, does, he makes French American hybrids, but I have a lot of respect for Charlie Whitehill. And his partner initially, who now is uh, the owner of West Whitehill, Steve West, is also a pioneer. Uh, you, you know, you have guys like um, uh, Dr. Dick Daniels, who's uh, passed away a few years back. Who, uh, who had his winery, Daniel's Vineyards, outside of Beckley. Uh, really great, great guy and just a real pioneer in terms of growing different, different varietals. Probably had 100 different varietals he tried on his, on his farm, which was actually, his winery was actually a, uh, an old golf course. Um, you know, uh, Jerry Deal in, in Morgantown, his family's still making wine, Fork, Forks of Cheat, uh, great, great place. Um, so, so there, are, there are tons of people like, not tons, there are several, a handful, not tons, that, that really made this industry go, and some of them are still, are still at it. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, we had a lot of energy, and like you mentioned, a lot of really good people working in this industry, and there was like some excitement that maybe I don't sense as much nowadays. Um, even from some of those pioneers, they're either retiring, you know, doing something different or, or, or just maybe the next generation like in Jerry Deal and uh, Lambert's and all that are taking over the wineries. Um, do, you, do you see a change, I mean, yeah. in that? I think, I think the big problem, uh, it's not really a problem. I think they've, they have morphed a lot of them into uh, tourism places where Yes, they make wine. A lot of not not every one of them, but a lot of them they'll make these sweet wines, berry wines, grape wines, uh, and they'll sell them. Uh, that's kind of what they focus on. But they also you can get married there. Uh, you can have picnics. You can have family reunions. That sort of thing. So that's where I've seen the growth go, kind of horizontally in that respect. I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, vertical growth in terms of the quality. Of what they're growing and again i understand the problems you know there, there's the blue ridge is it the blue ridge that separates virginia from west virginia whatever that 
part of the Allegheny mountain chain is, it's amazing the difference in the climates from our side to the other side, you know, all the way from, from uh, I-66 uh, down to Charlottesville. That's just, that's like kind of like the Napa Valley of the East Coast. And they're growing all these things, Chenin Blanc, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Viognier, um, you know, and doing a great job with it. But yet you go across the mountains and we have more difficulty. Even though they're in Virginia and you think of Virginia as having hot summers, we have hotter um, and more humid uh, summers. And the humidity is not good for mold and that sort of thing. Also, our winters are significantly more uh, uh, frost. We have more snow, more, more snow is not bad, but we have freeze that kills grape grapevines, particularly these 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 great American great uh, European vinifers like Chardonnays and Pinot Grigios and those kind of things. So it's more difficult for them to grow that kind of grape, which would then result in a wine that would be competitive to the wines in Virginia and even in uh, on the West Coast. So they're kind of at that level. I don't know if 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 they'll develop some kind of if if the uh, horticulturists or whomever can develop some kind of, uh, you know, resistant vine to the weather or whatever, then we could probably do it. But I, I, I you know, if Charlie Winehill can do it in, outside of Kaiser up in the mountains, I, I don't know, maybe he, he ought to share his tricks because that, I think that's the only thing, in my opinion, that is keeping the West Virginia wines from, from uh, evolving uh, qualitatively further. Yeah, most of the development recently, well, at least quite a bit of development recently in winery law or licenses has been in cideries and meaderies. It's, uh, you know, yes. making those products is we've had almost probably as many cideries and meaderies open in West Virginia as we have uh, like table wine makers. Yeah. And, and not only that, I mean, um, distilleries. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time up in Tucker County and we just have a, a new apple brandy place right in Davis. And then you, you go out the road um, um, uh, five or 10 miles away and there's a distillery still hollow. Uh, so there, those kind of things are, are happening. And you're right about the mead and that sort of thing. But, you know, in terms of grape, grape wines, we just, they, I think the industry has decided that it's just too difficult uh, to, to try to go to that next level and, and grow vinifera. Well, we, of course, normally direct this program towards beer and craft beer and two beer drinkers since, you know, West Virginia Beer Roads. Um, but Charles has told me, he's, he's told on you a little bit, that you've been spotted more than once, possibly, at the Stumptown <laughs> Hills Tap Room in Davis. So I'd like to know how yeah. you discovered them and what you enjoy when it comes to craft beer. You know, um, I, I love, uh, I love all kinds of beer. I, I don't have the capacity that I used to have to, to drink as much of it as I'd like. But um, yeah, Stumptown, from the very beginning, we've known Cindy and John. Um, you know, he was a lawyer, actually did some work for us property work but when they opened up they have just gone steadily they've just gonna take you know, up i mean they've just done a lot of different things they're doing sours now all the time i don't know if you've had their sours but they'll take cherries and they'll take boysenberries or blueberries and they'll do a sour they, they do they do they do belgians you know uh doubles and triples and 
uh, and they have a they have a um, uh, a wonderful. I'm I'm more of a malt pilsner kind of a guy. I like malt as biggie malty, you know, porters and and um, and and stouts. And but I also like lagers and pilsners. And so I I kind of I'm bugging them all the time about doing them. And it seems like everything everybody in the state does. If I have one complaint about the craft brew industry, and, and I'm sure you do it because it sells is all the IPAs out there. And to me, I don't like them because they dry me out. There's kind of like a beech nut um, uh, chewing gum kind of taste to them that I don't like. They dry me out there and they, so so I don't like them, but I, I'll try them. I, I always try them, hoping that maybe I'll find one I like, but I but I love everything else. I'm, again, I'm, I, I like the, the darker beers. I like, uh, I like um, Pilsners, lagers, I like, uh, ales, but but Stumptown to me is just the epitome of what if I was going to do it, I'd love to have a business like that because uh, there, Cindy particularly is just such a, a, a wonderful person and she's so you know just a brilliant and she's happy and and she knows her beer and she has good people and there she has a very um, loyal crowd. So yeah, I love them. I mean. At one point, we had three uh, breweries within a mile in, in Davidson Thomas. You know, we still have uh, uh, Mountain State, but I don't know whether retail operations open anymore. And then, of course, the, at Davidson, but that's kind of gone down, gone by the wayside. But we still have two in, in uh, the little that little one mile stretch. Mm -hmm. I know as a West Virginia craft beer drinker, we were excited to see them have a tap room here locally in the Charleston area. So uh, we, we definitely enjoy their beers as well. And we've had them on our program before and, and it's a great group. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, they're good. like craft beer. Yeah. I know them. I know the guys a little bit at Big Timber. I've been to their, their brewery in Elkins uh, several times. And um, so I sneak in and get a beer every now and then. Yeah. You know, John, we're, we are fortunate. We don't have a ton of breweries in the West Virginia, just like we don't have a ton of small wineries. But we really yeah. have, we're lucky. We have some pretty good breweries these days. I mean, overall, yeah. I mean, the the percentage of ones that are making really good beers, you mentioned two of them there with uh, Stumptown and Big Timber and uh, Mountain State, you know, sells a lot of beer and they have tap rooms in Morgantown and Deep Creek Lake, Maryland and uh, Clarksburg or Bridgeport, whatever yeah. now. Yeah, so, I mean, People are doing doing good in the beer business here, relatively. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I was just saying, the weathered is that what is that what it's called? The weathered, the brewery uh, crap. What's it called? It's weathered ground in uh, Cool Ridge, West Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, man, I love that. I just, I just, I was, uh, I kind of live really close to Bricks and Barrels, and so Drew, the the, the guy that uh, the bar bar guy there. I always hit him up for some taste of new stuff. And I'm, I said, when are you going to get a Pilsner? He said, I got one for you. And he gave me a sip of that. And uh, I, I said, well, I have to have more of that. So we, they have it in cans. So I bought a bunch of them. I really like it. Yeah. Yep. All so, right. Wine, wine drinkers, you heard it from John Brown. Yeah, give some of those weathered ground brews a try. <laughs> yeah, you guys, it, 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 it is really good. But, you know, there's so many of them. You're right about that. You know, yeah. I, I try to try different ones because – Drew down there always has different things, and uh, I'm close. Aaron, you have anything else? 
Uh, just that I believe we have um, some common uh, friends, acquaintances, more more closer friends to you than than me, although um, I am friends with them. But uh, Rob and Carrie Groom, the grooms, um, I, I know I've oh, briefly, briefly mentioned that I think that you know them. And of course, my kids have gone through school with their kids. And I believe Rob yeah. does, does some uh, some wine things for you. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's one of our winemakers now. I mean, he's, uh, I'm the winemaker emeritus. I come in and direct people, do this, do that. Make sure I get things stopped up. You know, and I don't lift in as much as I used to, but I kind of, I'm, I'm in there with them, making sure it's, it, 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 all the stuff is in my son's uh, cellar. And I'm always after him to keep the damn barrel topped up. You know, <laughs> some, because you, you forget about it. And you, you, you know, in a barrel, wooden barrel, you, you lose 15%. Of the, of the liquid volume unless you keep it up there. And of course, then you have an oxidation issue. So, but yeah, the Rob and uh, a couple other guys uh, th that are younger guys that are really into it now. And uh, so I feel like we're, we're, we're set for the future with well, these wines. Well, he was quite excited when he uh, heard that we were interviewing you today. So, <laughs> Rob's a great guy. He, he, he likes an occasional sip of bourbon too. Ah, that's okay. <laughs> seems to always fine down there where the wine is. There's always these different, uh, you know, little lovely little bourbons. So before we uh, close this out today, uh, another sector of the, an important sector of the wine business are the wine distributors, the wholesalers. And, and we've had to depend on them. Uh, John, you mentioned, I think, very early in the program today, some of the, the fact that, you know, that's an important aspect of our, our, our industry. And Give me some thoughts on who you've seen in the wholesale side that uh, have done a good job for wine in West Virginia. Well, I, I mean, there are just tons of them. If I try to start naming them, I'll leave them out. But some of the early ones, uh, uh, beverage distributors in Clarksburg, North Central in Clarksburg. Um, I knew those two because they, they, they're also, or, or North Central is also here. Um, you know, what happened was they, they didn't, I mean, they were, weren't real knowledgeable. They were beer distributors. They didn't know a whole lot about wine. So they really had to take a, a pretty expensive bite, you know, to get involved in that. And a lot of times uh, these, these people that they deal with are, you know, they, they have a lot of different lines. And a lot of times they give you the stuff maybe they aren't giving to somebody else. So they had to go through that whole thing. They evolved over the years to the point where they were really, really good uh, folks to, that, that you could depend upon to, um, to give you some qualitative uh, looks at, at, at what, what's coming down the pike. And so you could ask them, hey, could you get some samples? Or can we, what do you think of this new, um, would you want to get that? Could you get that? And so they provided a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, knowledge about the, the, the wine industry to people uh, like retailers who didn't really know much. And, and so they were between, you know, they still had to deal with the ABC commission. Um, and I think there was probably not a whole lot of love lost in the early days. Uh, the ABC commission didn't really like the fact that they were losing a bunch of that stuff. So these guys had that weight on their shoulders too. So, I mean, I really think, um, you know, that, that we have a, uh, a, a debt of gratitude owed to those folks too. Yeah. You know, I agree with you on that. I've seen so much good work done by the, wine wholesalers in West Virginia. And speaking of those, and you mentioned North Central, uh, 
we lost recently Kathy Foley yeah. who passed away and I right. want to pass along our condolences yeah. to her family and friends uh, uh, that was a absolutely Kathy was great talk about knowledgeable in the wine industry she she, she was it she knew knew a ton of things about everything she uh, importers you know she had great relationships with people and if you and if you needed a, a uh, an introduction and you're in California or you're in Italy, she, she could get it for you. Yeah, you're right. Well, John, we really appreciate you. I certainly do. I mean, I've gone to early on wine tastings that you led and you and Andy worked on back in the, the, the early days of our, of our new wine market in the eighties. Yeah. You've met and your column. I had more. Hair. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> no, but your yeah. columns. You, you probably did. <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna. There, I got a column coming out this weekend, and it's really interesting. You'll you'll like it, but it, it's about meatballs. And I said, uh, from someone, me, a me, from a real meatball. You know, I mean, I know. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Troy. I know you're trying to get. Well, no, uh, we're going to wrap this, this up. But uh, no, I just, if nothing else, I will never forget you because you introduced me or opened my eyes and talking to you to. Sonoma County wine, Dry Creek Zinfandel, one that I still truly love and seek yeah. out. And I thank you for that. Good stuff. You're very welcome. Keep drinking it. <laughs> yeah, I will. All right, Aaron, uh, thank you for being with us this evening too. And John, we'll catch you hopefully later. Again, keep up the good columns. Hope lots of success with your novels. Again, people, uh, we'll put the websites up and links for that on um, West Virginia Beer Roads and Brilliant Stream. And uh, Thank you. I think that's about it. Aaron? Great. Thanks, John. It was really great talking with you this evening. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Aaron. Good to see you guys, too. This brings us to the close of another podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast host. Thank you for listening to West Virginia Beer Roads. West Virginia Beer Roads is a production of BrilliantStream.com.